following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Today we're continuing our journey through Exodus. We're in Exodus 30. We'll be concluding a portion of Scripture where it talks about the tabernacle, the construction of the tabernacle, and the items included within the tabernacle. So let's go ahead and I'll read chapter 30. Moreover, you shall make an altar as a place for burning incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. Its length shall be a cubit and its width a cubit. It shall be square and its height shall be two cubits. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and its sides all around, and its horns. And you shall make a gold molding all around for it. You shall make two gold rings for it under its molding. You shall make them on its two side walls, on opposite sides. And they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put this altar in front of the veil that is near the Ark of the Testimony. In front of the mercy seat that is over the ark of the testimony, where I will meet with you. Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. He shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. When Aaron trims the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense. There shall be perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer any strange incense on this altar, or burnt offering, or meal offering, and you shall not pour out a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. He shall make atonement on it with the blood of the sin offering of atonement once a year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. The Lord also spoke to Moses, saying, When you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each one of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them so that there will be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone who is numbered shall give, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras. Half a shekel is a contribution to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and over shall give a contribution to the Lord. The rich shall not pay more, and the poor shall not pay less than the half shekel. When you give the contribution to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves... You shall take the atonement money from the sons of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall also make a laver of bronze with its base of bronze for washing, and you shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet from it, When they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water, so that they will not die, or when they approach the altar to minister, by offering up in smoke a fire sacrifice to the Lord. So they shall wash their hands and their feet, so that they will not die, and it shall be a perpetual statute for them, for Aaron and his descendants throughout their generations. Moreover, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take also for yourself the finest of spices, of flowing myrrh, 500 shekels, of fragrant cinnamon, half as much, 250, and a fragrant cane, 
250, and of cassia 500, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and of olive oil a hen. You shall make of these a holy anointing oil, a perfume mixture, the work of a perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting with the ark of the testimony, and the table and all its utensils, and the lampstand and its utensils, and the altar of incense. And the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and the labor and its stand, you shall also consecrate them, that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them shall be holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, that they may minister as priests to me. You shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, This shall be a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on anyone's body, nor shall you make any like it in the same proportions. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever shall mix any like it, or whoever puts any of it on a layman, shall be cut off from his people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take for yourself spices, stacti and anitja and galbanum, spices with pure frankincense. There shall be an equal part of each. With it you shall make incense, a perfume, the work of a perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. You shall beat some of it very fine and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. The incense which you shall make, you shall not make in the same proportions for yourselves. It shall be holy to, holy to you for the Lord. Whoever shall make any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. There's a lot going on in this passage. There's different sections, um, so we'll walk through them. We start with the altar of incense, and if we remember, Tim, several weeks ago, talked about the altar of sacrifice, the bronze altar. And there's a real um, difference in appearance. The bronze altar for the sacrifice, as Tim mentioned, was like a big barbecue. So it, it was not a beautiful sight, although some guys may think a barbecue is a beautiful thing. Um, but the altar of incense, when you picture God's word and description of it, this had to be a thing of absolute beauty. 18 inches square, 36 inches high, acacia wood, completely covered with gold. The horns it talks about are not horns of an animal. We may think that. But it's really just the corners of the table being upturned, a lip all the way around the table to contain the incense that was placed on it. Gold rings on both sides. Poles made of acacia wood. Everything was gold. If you want to talk about bling, this definitely had bling to it. This was a beautiful construction that was placed in the holy place. It was right in front of the curtain before the Ark of the Testimony. The offering of the incense also coincided with the morning and evening sacrifices that Tim talked about last week. Exodus 29:38 to 42. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two one-year-old lambs each day continuously. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And there shall be one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hen of beaten oil, and one-fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering with one lamb. The other lamb shall offer twilight and shall offer it with the same grain offering, the same drink offering. It shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tent of meeting. So these offerings 
of both the bronze altar and the altar of incense were done at approximately the same time. It also coincided with the lighting of the candles in the holy place in evening and twilight. And it mentions here that only a specific incense could be offered. See, the bronze altar, you could mix things with it. But this altar of incense was specific. And strange incense was not to be offered on it. Only that specific recipe. We read about what happened in Leviticus 10, 1 and 2 when Nadab and Abihu went against God's word. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out for the presence of the Lord had consumed them and they died before the Lord. There were consequences for going against God's word and his specific instructions about the altar of incense. King Uzziah, 2 Chronicles 26, 16 through 19, did the same thing. But when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. For he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Then Azariah the priest entered after him, and with him eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men. They opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated, to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord God. But Uzziah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priests, the leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord, beside the altar of incense. Don't mess with what God is telling the people were to follow about the altar of incense. He was very serious about this. Now we can ask, what does the altar of incense symbolize? And it symbolized the prayers of the people going up to God. It was a continuous offering. We know the Bible is a continuous story from Genesis to Revelation. And in Revelation 5, 8, we read about the prayers of the people. They were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And also in Revelation 8, 3, another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And even Paul speaks about this in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Pray without ceasing. The altar of incense was the prayers of the people, the nation of Israel, continually going up to God before the Holy of Holies. Then the passage switches gears and, and it, they start talking about the census. And this may seem out of place here because... Up until this point, we've talked about the tabernacle and the construction of the tabernacle and the items within the tabernacle. But this really does tie into the upkeep of the tabernacle as we go through this. It's important to note that even though God would authorize a census, the census had to be taken with great care. It was not something to be undertaken lightly. And there was potential great penalty for taking the census. In the ancient world, as far as we know, there was only two reasons for a nation to take a census. And the first one was to pay taxes. 
but because God had already outlined the contribution system for his people, this could not apply to the nation of Israel. This was not done to collect taxes from the people. The only other reason to take a census in the ancient world was to go to war. And that's why the nation of Israel would take a census. But it was only to be undertaken if God directed it. And the only reason to be taken was going to war, and the only person that could send Israel to war was Yahweh. They were only authorized to go to war to take and hold the promised land. To go beyond that would be go against God's word. And this word to go to war must come through one of God's prophets. That's how God communicated this. Israel's army was a voluntary army, much like those that have been here for a while know that I was in the military for 24 years, another eight plus as a civilian. The American military is a voluntary army. Israel's army was also a voluntary army. 20 years old and up, there was no recorded upper limit for service. They may have left it up to the individual to determine they no longer felt they could serve. But they paid a ransom. They paid that half shekel to cross over. And paying that and crossing over meant that you were volunteering to become part of God's army, to be counted among the warriors. And remember, this was not a, a mandatory. There was no conscription. It was volunteer, So they didn't have to cross over. But once they did, there was no turning back. There was no conscientious objector like we read about in some of Western militaries that people volunteered. And they said, oh, got second thoughts. I don't really feel like doing this. Um, when I was in the military active duty, and this is right before the Gulf War, we had some folks in the unit I was in that were tapped to go and deploy. And they came to me and they said, you know, I didn't really join to do this. I joined for the education benefits. And I just looked at him and I was like, you signed on the dotted line, you raised your right hand, you said, I do solemnly swear to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do about that. Man up. Um, may seem a little harsh, but it's a little different world there. Um, there were consequences for taking the unauthorized census. I'm not going to read it, but in 2 Samuel 24, it talks about David. After his kingdom was established, he wanted to expand the borders beyond what God had mandated. And David directed his people to go take a census. And his advisors recommended that he not do that. He told them to do it anyway. It took approximately nine months. They came back with the numbers. And at that point, God felt on, or, uh, David felt on his heart that he had disobeyed God. And he repented, but God said, you've already done this. There's a penalty to pay. And he gave him three choices on what the penalty would be. It's interesting that David voluntarily chose what's recorded in verse 12 here. And that was for a plague to be sent on the nation of Israel to pay for David's disobedience to God. The penalty, though, was not of a personal nature. It was a corporate nature. It was against the entire nation of Israel. The idea of ransom here, you could probably do an entire sermon on just this subject. But the ransom was a payment through which one symbolically bought their life back from God. And they recognized 
two very important facts. One is that God owns our life. God created us. We are for his pleasure. We are to serve him. Our lives do not belong to ourselves. And the second one is that even though God may require the people in the Israel army to give their life in his service, they would enjoy an abundant life within the covenant protection that he provided. And previously in Exodus, we've seen these principles in the ransom redemption, redemption laws already discussed. Fast forward to the New Covenant and New Testament. These same terms are used to represent what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. He has ransomed us from death. Matthew 20, 28. Just as a son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 1 Timothy 2, 6a. Who gave himself as a ransom for all. In Hebrews 9, 15. For this reason, he is a mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So there was a ransom in the Old Testament, redemption, and Jesus pays the ransom redemption for us under the new covenant. We may ask why it was a half shekel doesn't really say why that specific amount. But the important point here is that it was the same regardless whether you were wealthy or poor. The rich would pay a half shekel. The poor would pay a half shekel. And really the purpose of this is to demonstrate that every one of these people were equal in God's eyes. Nobody was better than another person. We need to remember that today, that no matter what our education no matter what country we come from, no matter what our economic status, whether we're attractive, whether we have lots of hair, um, that we are all equal in God's eyes. And that's why it was the half shekel. Actually, the hair just fell down on my face through time. It's gravity. Now, this half shekel was used for the upkeep and running of the tabernacle. The anointing oil was used only once the tabernacle was set up or when the nation of Israel moved. But the incense was used continually throughout the life cycle of the tabernacle, and that would incur a cost. It was a memorial for the Israelites before God. It was a visible token that God knew the volunteers belonged to him, and they were holy. They had atoned for their lives. The ultimate analogy is Christ's death as a payment for the atonement for our sins. We should never forget that Christ's divine substitutionary death causes all to believe in faith to be remembered by God as his own people. We move on to the bronze wash basin. One of the few items within the tabernacle that there are not specific dimensions given to it. It is to be made of bronze. And their shape. There are some laws within the Old Testament that reflect God's concern for the health and safety of his people, as well as teaching them how to be holy and respect God's holiness. That was the purpose of the bronze wash basin. So remember, the emphasis should not be on the design of the basin, 
but what its purpose was. And one was to be physically clean, but the other was symbolic cleanliness and holiness in service to God. The priests working at the bronze altar of sacrifice would obviously get probably pretty dirty sacrificing the animals, working with the altar, wash their hands. We also remember previously that they did not wear shoes, so they're walking through this, so their feet and lower legs would probably get quite dirty. Um, so this was used to wash their feet and wash their legs and, and their um, hands. It's interesting that there are no instructions on how to actually do this. We have to assume that the Israelites had common sense on how to wash hands and feet. Um, it's very possible that the actual procedure changed as a tabernacle moved, as a nation of Israel moved, depending on where they were located at. Uh, maybe they're close to a water source. Maybe topography had something to do with it. Um, but the value of the Browns wash basin was in God teaching his people the importance of purity. Those that worked around the altar, if their hands were dirty, food would, I mean, dirt would get on the food. Food wouldn't taste so good. How many like to have dirt on their food when they eat? Dirty clothes. God was teaching his people that holiness demands purity. And the people and things brought into God's presence should be clean, should be pure, should not be common. The priests needed to be symbolically pure to be worthy of serving in the tabernacle, not just physically clean. God demands that those who approach him be pure. So in the Old Testament, we see that this was done more of a physical nature and symbolic. But under the New Covenant, how are we made pure? It's not necessarily by washing our hands, although that is important, but we're made pure by our heart. Do we come into God's presence with a pure heart, with a heart that's contrite, with a heart that's seeking after him? We see this in Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 1 Timothy 1, 5. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. In 2 Timothy 2.22, Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So for us, the purity comes from our heart. It doesn't mean that we should have filthy hands, but that's really what God's looking for is that we repent, we come before him, with a pure heart. And talk about the anointing oil. We've already mentioned that anything in service to God, coming before God, should be clean and pure and holy. Well, in biblical times, lice was a real problem. And anybody who has lived in a country that's less developed understands that lice is something that you have to worry about. Our daughter, when we lived in Okinawa, went to DTS YWAM in the Philippines. She also volunteered at an orphanage in Manila called Gentle Hands. And lice was a serious problem there along with some other things. And this was in the capital of the Philippines. So lice is a real problem. But in biblical times, it was even more of a problem. But regular use of oil combated the lice. It would kill them. So the priests would use the oil 
to keep the lice off of them. We have to ask ourselves, why would you put oil on the furniture? Well, there's a practical reason for that. Lice don't live on the furniture, but if one of the priests, those working in the temple, had not properly anointed themselves with the oil, they could actually transmit the lice. So that's why God instructed them to also anoint the furniture within the tabernacle so that it would not be transmitted from one person to another. The recipe for this oil is quite specific. A hin of oil was approximately one gallon. So that's quite a bit of oil. Then there's 1,500 shekels of the fragrances. If you mixed all this together, it would weigh about 38 pounds. That's quite a bit of anointing oil. There are various theories on how it was actually made. Most likely, all the ingredients were mixed together into a paste-like substance, and it was passed repeatedly through a filtering cloth that would leave the residue on top, but underneath would be the oil that would contain the essence of all the ingredients. This would also be the process that a perfumer would use, as mentioned in verse 25. So although we don't know for sure, that is the most likely way that they made the anointing oil. We read that everything in the tabernacle, the tabernacle itself and all the items, had to be anointed with this oil. Verses 25 to 30 detail the requirement. This would make everything that was anointed, as verse 29 says, most holy. The Israelites would understand that anointing the tabernacle, the furniture, Aaron and his sons, and their clothing signifies setting them apart for service to God. They are God's special possession. Earlier in Genesis, we see the the same idea, um, and also where God dwells, it was anointed. In Genesis 28, 16 through 18, we read about Jacob at Bethel. He had a dream, and he wakes up. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone they had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. Jacob anointed that place where God dwelled. The anointing oil was used for God's dwelling place, the tabernacle. This was a permanent instruction throughout the generations, not just a one time. The oil was not allowed to be used for anything other than what was prescribed in this passage. This was a special, holy, anointing oil. Penalty for misusing the oil was quite severe. Verse 33 says, they shall be cut off from their people. We need to ask ourselves, what does cut off from their people mean? This was not a legal guideline or instruction. It wasn't excommunication. It wasn't the death penalty. This was closer to a divine curse from God. This was a person, if they misused the oil, was defying God's regulations, showing that they had no interest in following what God had outlined in his instructions. And because of their disobedience, they would suffer the consequences of their actions. This is more a statement on the faith of those who are being unfaithful. The formula in the use of the incense 
concludes this chapter, the only ingredient that is precisely identified as frankincense. The other three have names that could have meant different things at different times. There's some uh, opinions as to which is more likely. Um, that's not the important point. Also, the passage doesn't specify the amount as opposed to the anointing oil. The anointing oil, as mentioned, was only used when the tabernacle was set up, when it moved and reset up. The incense was used continuously, morning and evening, as long as the tabernacle was set up. So again, we have to infer that through time, the priests would have used common sense and known how much they would need to prepare to keep the incense burning. Need to ask the question, why was salt added to the incense? How many people in this room have perfume or cologne that when you read the ingredients, you see it has salt in it? I don't think mine does. I don't think any of yours does. So why was salt added to the incense? In ancient times, salt was the only preservative known. So was salt used as an actual preservative? Most likely not. This was really more a symbolic preservative that was added to it. The phrase of salt was understood to, be, to mean that it was permanent, that it would not spoil, would not go bad. We read in verse 35, it is to be salted and pure and sacred that the Israelites would understand that as a permanent symbol of my covenant, which is pure and holy with my people. For to reflect the fact that I make promises that are permanent and that I myself am absolutely pure and holy. So the use of salt is really a symbolic preservative and a mark of holiness. Those that spend a lot of time studying the Bible, you know that when phrases are repeated repeatedly or several times throughout a passage, that's adding emphasis. Well, when we look at verses 36 and 37, those are subsequent passages that address the misuse of the incense in being cut off and also that there was a great penalty to be paid. So we, God was trying to emphasize this. This section finishes the description of the tabernacle and the furniture and the items contained with it. I think what's interesting is that there's so much detail. And I'm not flippant when I say this, but you almost wonder, God is OCD on details because he talks about using this many poles and this height and... The bronze altar, the dimensions, was one-tenth the width of the courtyard of the tabernacle. The altar of incense was one-tenth of the width of the tent that is contained at the holy place. There's so much detail in what God has described to his people. And I kind of like that. Those that work with me know that I'm like really OCD on details. Um, maybe it's my military background. Maybe it was inside me that I was just brought out. But I think there's a message here from God about details, that he was concerned about details, and he wants his people to be concerned about details in our lives, in our ministry, in our families. In the time that Kyung and I have been here, I've heard it mentioned, well, I'll just let the Holy Spirit lead me. Okay, now 
don't take it the wrong way because I, I agree that the Holy Spirit leads us. But within the context of what was said to me, that was more a lack of wanting to put the effort into planning and coordinating in being proactive instead of reactive. God has given us a wonderful thing called a brain. And with his brain, we can reason, we can think, we can plan. So I think that there's a message here that God wants us to be concerned about details and not just wing it from day to day. God deserves our best. God deserves our best effort, not just throwing something together. There are times that will happen. Um, you know, talk about me being OCD when Kyung and I go on vacation. We just went to Korea for 10 weeks. I'm OCD to the point that I print out a calendar and I put, we're flying on this day on this flight number. We're coming back on this day on this flight number and the things we want to do. And I'll put it in the calendar. And there's probably some folks thinking this dude is in need of some serious prayer, but it works for us. We had friends from the church come visit for a week and ask them ahead of time, so do you like to go see the palaces? Do you like to go see some shows? And we worked out, and it was on the, it was on the schedule. Um, details. Sometimes we get thrown curveballs. During that week, Chong and I and the other couple, we went to a show called, it was Korea House. If anybody's ever been to Korea and you've gone to any of these shows, you know that they come out into the audience and they pick people to go up on stage. 2010, we went, and our two younger kids were still in the house, and we went to a show called Jump, which was martial arts. And we're sitting in the middle section, and they come into the audience down each aisle, and I'm paying attention over here, thinking, oh, who are they going to pick? And I don't know, but Kong sitting next to me is going, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, mm, and I turn out and... I'm being hauled up on stage to do martial arts. That wasn't a pretty picture. Um, but we had a plan, but then there was a little curveball thrown into that plan. Similar thing happened on the trip we just took. Went to a Korea house, and it's a traditional show, and they come in the audience to pick somebody, and they try to tab the folks behind us, and the guy was like, he's not going. I mean, my wife's trying Again, and I'm like, homie ain't playing that game two times. I'm not going up there again. So finally, she went up there. And that was, that was really, she went up there. They put the costume on her and her face. Was, and it was a fan dance. And she starts doing the fan dance. And the guy who wouldn't go up behind me, I heard him say, wow, she's good. Of course, he didn't know that in elementary school in Korea, they teach him how to do the fan dance. So she was a ringer that went up there and knew exactly how to do it. We went to visit her mom, and her mom's 86. And we told her, and her mom, I think if she would have been there, she would have run up on stage and dropped like 30 years because she's like doing the whole fan dance thing. So we went to the show, didn't expect it, but we had to change course. Military analogy. Most of my time I was a meteorologist, but for several years I was a war planner. And the level of detail that goes into war planning is something that you just, you maybe could imagine, but there's a lot of detail in there. Um, think of in, before the Soviet Union collapsed, there was a Warsaw Pact and NATO. There was a war plan that was called a deliberate planning process, so it was proactive. 
and, you know, thousands of pages that would detail climatology, would detail we're moving these people in these things from these bases to these bases. They have to be here by these days. Um, tons of detail. I think God wants us to have detail in our lives and our ministry. Failing to plan is planning to fail. So we come to this, the end of this section of, of Scripture, the tabernacle and the items within it. We could say this is a great history lesson or this is a great lesson on civil engineering on how to construct this and how to set things up. And it's true. But we would be missing so much more that God wants us to see within this section of Scripture. And that's why I titled this the whole sermon template for worship because now I want to go back and take a look at the tabernacle itself and how that applies to us today and how we can use that to go into God's presence and to worship. Tony, can you throw up this, or not actually throw up, but put up the slide that has the tabernacle? Bingo. So picture this as I go through the steps. So the tabernacle is about, the curtains were about seven and a half feet high. So you walk through the gate, and the first thing is the outside world is shut off. It's a little bit more difficult to do here, but the message there is we need to set aside the concerns and cares and distractions of the world. When we have our private worship time, anybody who's seen War Room, that private prayer closet. We go, we start to go into God's presence and the outside world should be shut off. We need to just focus on God and drawn into God's presence. The first thing we probably see once we go in is that bronze altar of sacrifice. Think of the things that were sacrificed there back in the day. There were sin offerings. There were trespass offerings burnt offerings, thanksgiving, reconciliation. The bronze altar is the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is beautiful in its saving grace, but just in its appearance, it had to be ugly. Rough wood, blood stains on it. The bronze altar couldn't have been a real pretty place when the sacrifices were being done, blood spilled on the ground, pieces of animal on the altar. But the bronze altar symbolizes the cross of Jesus Christ for us. This is where the sacrifices were made for the sins of Israel. And this is where the sacrifice was made for our sins. The blood was shed. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross has satisfied the once-for-all requirement for blood. They were redeemed by animals, animal sacrifice. We are redeemed by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. As we move into worship, let us reflect upon that and be thankful for the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Then we see the bronze laver. At that time, that was used to wash away the physical impurities and the symbolic impurities. This is where we confess our sins. All the things that we've done to transgress God's commandments. Use the Ten Commandments as a step-by-step to pray 
to confess these sins? Have I put anything ahead of God? Have I used God's name in vain? Not just profanity-wise, but have we used it in another way in vain? Do I take a Sabbath day of rest? It's important to take a rest day. You can't burn out. Even the military understands you can't work seven days a week. When I was in Iraq, the commander said, I want everybody to take a half a day off a week. Not like you could do anything because you're at this base in the middle of the desert, but just as a way to get away and to decompress and to recharge. It's important for us to do that. Do I kill by hating? Am I stealing from anyone or am I stealing from God? Am I not giving him the offerings that he deserves? Do I covet? This materialistic world, it's so easy to always want more and bigger and better. Talk about the American dream. It's really the American nightmare because you keep chasing something that you could never get to. So we confess our sins. We are now have a pure heart before God. So we move from the courtyard into the holy place. Maybe a little dim in there. Probably the first thing we see is a lampstand. Seven candles signifying the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit can give to us. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, power, so important to live this life. Knowledge, fear of the Lord, holiness. We're moving farther and farther into our worship experience. There's a table of the showbread. It's our daily bread. It's God's word. It nourishes and instructs us. It teaches us about God. We read his word. We meditate upon it. We're thankful for God's word, for his instruction and guidance in our lives. Then we come before the altar of incense, symbolizing the thanksgiving and praise as our prayers and our voices are lifted to God. Our praises for what he has done for us. And then glorious picture, we are through the veil, we're in the Holy of Holies, we're in God's presence, his dwelling place. Maybe one of the first things we see is some blood on the mercy seat. We're reminded once again of the sacrifice of Jesus, what was required to move into God's presence. I am welcomed, we are welcomed into God's presence through the redemption of Christ, through the spilling of his blood. We're in God's presence. I'm free from sin. I'm clean and invited into God's presence for all eternity. And then we bring our prayers of supplication, our requests before God, and we're fellowshipping with God, and we're talking to God, and we're in his presence. But none of that happens if we don't start at the cross. When we come into God, we come into worship, the first thing is that bronze altar, the first thing is the cross of Jesus Christ. If we don't start there, if we don't acknowledge it, if we don't accept it, Nothing else happens. It's at the cross that we start the journey to true fellowship with God.
You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.